Welcome back to 2 Timothy, our last uh, chapter. Chapter 4 is today. And if we were in class, we would be singing His Eyes on the Sparrow and Abide with Me. And both of those are wonderful hymns from the past that um, you would do well to look them up and, and read their lyrics. Let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us back here today on this uh, last um, chapter of 2 Timothy. We ask that you would just speak to us through Paul's words, and Lord, help us to, um, to take to heart all that you have written in it, that we would be um, more and more conformed to your image for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, facing soon martyrdom and having no delusions regarding his future, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 4 with a solemn charge to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. Paul places preaching the word in a very holy context with his words. He begins by reminding Timothy, as well as ourselves, that we are ever in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. We all live quorum Deo. We are all to be about living our lives for an audience of one, capital O. Whether we realize it or not, it matters greatly how you live your life. And Paul is reminding Timothy and us the best way don't you want to know the best way? Isn't it nice to learn in a classroom rather than on a field trip the best way? Remember Paul's words to us in Ephesians. Be very careful then, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We can be assured that at the very least, God's will for his children is to know the truth of his word, which we've gone over and over and over about, and to be prepared to share it with others, both in season and out of season. Indeed, a high view of the Bible should lead us to a high view of biblical teaching and preaching. God desires for us to be faithful teachers who teach for the pleasure of God those in our spheres. Remember, we teach with our words as well as our ways. God told Jeremiah, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what is trying to do with grain, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. That's Jeremiah 23, 28-29. Michael Yusuf writes, Paul's purpose for writing to Timothy was to encourage him and to remind him never to give up. The early church faced all kinds of trials and temptations, just as we do. There were many who challenged Paul's teaching, just as we do it today. They also challenged Timothy's spiritual leadership. Religious teachers then, just like many today, sought to weaken God's word and truth. Paul writes, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me as his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. He not only saves us, but he has called us to holy living. 2 Timothy 1, 7-9 there are many who attend church and are involved in religious work, Yusuf says, but they remain afraid to speak God's truth, especially when facing moral and spiritual issues. Paul reminds Timothy to be strong, to be firm in the faith, and steadfast, steadfast in his devotion to God. When we refuse to compromise our convictions, we experience a God-given strength throughout our lives. But when we waver between what we know is right and wrong, God's principles and the world's political correctedness, we become unstable in all that we do. How do you avoid becoming fearful and doubting? Begin by refusing to compromise your convictions. Don't sell out to the world's deception. Then you will remain strong in your faith. If Timothy had taken his eyes off of Christ, he would have weakened in his ministry and he would have been ineffective, refused to dilute the truth of the gospel, because Satan always still comes, as did God really say, so that it will be acceptable to fallen men. 
Don't deny God's truth so that you may feel popular or accepted. Never be ashamed of God's word. Cling to it because it is the light unto your path. I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know whom I believed. Paul writes in 2 Timothy. While we perhaps aren't prophets or teachers per se, we all have an audience and spheres of influence, and God wants us to be faithful, not only to share, but to live what we share. <clears throat> Concerning the Reformation, Martin Luther penned, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The word did it all. I did nothing. I left it to the word. But it brings him, Satan, much distress when we only spread the word and let it alone to do the work. Well, I think it's Spurgeon that says, just let the lion out. The word is like a lion. Let it out. It'll do its work. Teach the word faithfully and believe that it will do the work. Hebrews tells us in 4, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, for the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joint and mirror. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Every motive, every action, every thought behind the action is, is, is seen from God's viewpoint. Everything is uncovered. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You are held accountable for your own life. Don't be duped about this. You owe it to yourself. Be sensible about it. That's Hebrews 4, 12-13. Paul speaks of urgency and readiness in our teachings as well. The truth we are communicating is a matter of life, death, and eternity. Therefore, the soldier in Christ's army is always on duty. To trifle with souls is an awful sin. God's word is powerful to change the hearts of people in all places at all times. We are to proclaim the whole truth of God, which not only gives us the way of salvation, but also shows us how we ought to live after we are redeemed. The servant of God who teaches the word will never be at a loss for subjects with the whole scripture in his hand and in his heart. We are to be consistent. Our walks must match our talks. Everybody knows that as a parent. You can tell your children to, not to do something, but if you choose to do it in front of them, then they're likely to do it. Or the message loses its power. We are to be faithful and to be constantly on the lookout for opportunities to glorify God and to make him known to others. Also, we are to know our audience. Paul was a master at this. He gives three ways the word is to be applied. Correct, which means to help others get back on the right path of righteousness. Rebuke, which means to rebuke wrong beliefs, ungodly lifestyles. And thirdly, encourage. When facing fear, anxiety, or great burdens, we, burdens, we need the encouragement of others. All this is to be done with great patience and love, remembering always that sanctification, and that's just a big word for a Christian's growth to be like Christ, is a slow process, amazingly slow. We are slow learners in this. Consider the story of Charles Simeon. John Piper writes, Charles Simeon exhibited great patience. When he first came to Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, no one wanted him to be the minister. For example, the pew holders locked the pew doors on Sunday mornings. They refused to participate in corporate worship and prevented any others from sitting down, allowing only standing individuals to worship. This lasted for 12 years. They also would not allow him to preach the evening sermon. Yet Simeon, single his entire life, remained at this church for 54 years and eventually won the favor of many of his people. You can still read the faithful expositions. How did he endure? A friend said of him, Simeon invariably rose every morning, though it was a winter season, at four o'clock 
and after lighting his fire, he devoted the first four hours of the day to private prayer and devotional studies of the scriptures. Here was the secret of his great grace and spiritual strength. There was a book, I think it's written by Robert Morgan again, it's called A um, Hundred Christian Men Every Christian Should Know, and inevitably, each one of their lives was marked by being in the Word and in prayer. Richard Baxter writes, Study hard, for the well of spiritual knowledge is deep, and our brains are shallow. <laughs> Amen to that. We are never to neglect our preparedness. We have nothing to offer if we do. And it's a blessing sometimes when God allows our lives to narrow down so that we have more and more of, and able to have more and more of him when he takes away all the peripheral like in the word like in Enoch who walked with God who finally he just walked home and, and the word Enoch means a narrowing and he just kept cutting off all the peripheral that was the unnecessary and you know that you've grown uh, in spiritual walk when, when you're getting rid of the good for the better we cannot give what we ourselves do not have. Also, Paul adds that a time would come when people will not listen to the truth. They will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. Instead, they surround themselves with those who, who, willingly, who will willingly teach them whatever their itching ears want to hear. It's kind of like our, in our day's time today, too. Ever on the hunt for something new and exciting, people drift from healthy teaching to suit their own passions. We must be faithful in teaching the truth because there is an absence of it in every generation. Paul charges us as well, continue on in the word, keep learning it, keep believing it, keep teaching it. David Platt writes, recently one of our missionary friends showed us some pictures of a totally unengaged people group. He and his family were going to minister among for the next three years. There has never been a church planted among this particular group of people in East Asia. We were struck by one notable photo. It was a picture of a casket. When individuals of this people group turn 65, they each build their own casket, and it just sits by their house. Our friends are going to share with these people the promise of life in Christ Jesus, so that when each one gets put in his or her casket, that person will be able to live forever in his heavenly kingdom. That picture of a casket, casket is a reminder for everyone. We will all die. We must take, make this life count. We must be faithful to the end. Paul called Timothy to be different, and we too are to be different. Timothy was charged to fulfill his ministry, and so are we. God has a specific plan for each one of our lives, and we are to walk in it. And we are the losers when we don't. All of our good, all for our good and for his glory. We are to do the next right thing as well. As Paul states in Philippians, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I can Consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ, and this is Paul talking, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But this one thing I do, I forget what is behind. You can't change that. And I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And he asks later, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Paul ran his race to receive the crown, and he wanted his protege to do likewise, and so should we. This would call for a clear head, moral alertness, and sober-mindedness. We are not to freak out losing our heads when we face opposition, or hanging our heads when we face discouragement. Remain calm, 
remain steady. This is an urgent directive as sober-mindedness is a necessity for a child of the king. We are not to be puffed up with pride or turned to myths or mere fabrications of man's mind. Rather, we are hold, to hold, told to keep our head in all situations, enduring hardships as a good soldier of Christ and thoroughly to do our duties that he has called us to do wherever he has placed us to do it. And I'll add, without grumbling, without complaining, the eternity, the eternity of others is always at stake. Paul himself exemplified this cool and collected spirit later in his chapter. After saying that everyone had deserted him in his first defense, he states in verse 16, may it not be held against them. He knew that man was fearful at best. Paul does not say, I hope they all die and burn. He's not reckless with his words. He is self-controlled, sober, and merciful. This is an important point for us as well. We are to watch our words. James tells us in James 3, 5 through 8, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. A great prayer for us to pray regarding our words is King David's prayer in Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Likewise, may the Lord give us strength to be sober-minded. Timothy, like Paul, like us, was to endure hardship and continue through conflict. He was to be willing to suffer for faithfulness to the truth. He was to avoid the deadly root of bitterness when things went south. Avoid quitting due to violence because things were getting hard, but rather endure it following Paul's stellar example. If he did not learn to endure hardship, he would not fight the good fight of faith. Isaiah tells us in 7-9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Remember as well, all believers are called to spread the word, and unfortunately, few take this call seriously. Jesus states, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Matthew 9, 37-38. Again, in Matthew 28, 18-20, he writes, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There are enough half-hearted slackers. We need hard-working farmers in the field. Evangelism is labor. It is sowing and plowing every day if we want to see fruit. Fill your heart with the gospel daily and keep your attention on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We should consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Elizabeth Elliot writes of Amy Carmichael, Amy Carmichael felt that the world had far too many run-of-the-mill Christians, cool, respectable, satisfied with the usual and mediocre, why bother to lay down one's life to multiply the number of those? Remember, if you want to be faithful to the end, there are no shortcuts in the middle. In the next verses, 6 through 8, Paul issues his charge to Timothy in light of his impending martyrdom. Here we find some powerful words to all Christians about loving and serving Christ until the end of our days. Finish well. We cannot die well if we do not live well. 
In verse 6, Paul speaks of dying and departing. The first subject is illustrated with the sacrifice, and the second is perhaps the image of a boat. Concerning the former, Paul states, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He says that in Philippians. About five years prior, Paul had written, oh, I just said that, <laughs> written to the Philippians this analogy to describe the possibility of his death. But even if I'm being poured out, even if I go to the death, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me, he writes in Philippians 2, 17 through 18. The details of Paul's death are not given in scripture, but this picture of being poured out for Christ's sake is still awe-inspiring. As a Roman citizen, Paul could not be crucified. Therefore, he may have anticipated being beheaded, in which case his blood would spatter like wine on the ground. This pouring out of life would be his offering of worship to Jesus. Paul's entire life as a believer was about sacrificial service. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, my dear brothers, in 1558, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever you do in his name is not in vain. When our life is over, will people be able to say of us, they poured out their life for Christ's sake? Next, Paul adds, the time has come for my departure. The, world, the word translated departure is also used in Greek literature for the loosing of a ship from its moorings or a soldier loosening the stakes of his tent. The image of a boat is indeed a beautiful one. What a wonderful image of Paul lifting the anchor, tossing aside the ropes and joyfully sailing to a better place. The believer never really dies, they just depart. Paul longed for this final, ultimate voyage. He had earlier told the Philippians, if I'm going to keep on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This was Paul's dream, and now that the ship was about to depart, Paul was ready. His death was about to be swallowed up in victory. The question we need to pose to ourselves is, are we ready? Believers who approach their final days in this life can find comfort in these words. When we depart, we are far better off. Paul puts his present sufferings in perspective in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, he writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, they don't seem light and momentary to me, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And again, he adds in Romans, Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Another drink offering, Charles Spurgeon said of his glorious departure, to come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and to the summit of all my wishes. Paul looks back on his life with triumph and he uses three more word pictures associated with victory. First, he uses the analogy of a fight. I have fought the good fight. Our worn, torn apostle, his body scarred from beatings and everything else. Paul was a spiritual warrior. He had great courage and boldness and patiently endured much dissension in his walk, undergoing all kinds of struggles in his journeys. It had been about 30 years since Christ had called him on the Damascus Road, and he had proven faithful to his call. What is more, Paul said ultimately his fight was beyond what the human eye could see. 
In Ephesians, he tells us, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, for finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Try to envision this faithful apostle writing this letter from a hole in the ground in Rome, sans comfort, sans companionship, accepting, of course, our Lord Jesus. We do the scriptures such disservice in the people of the scriptures when we take off the flesh and bones of them. They were human just like us. His words are weighty when he states to endure hardship in verse 5 as they come from one who had endured it to such a high degree. Secondly, Paul states, I have finished the race. I love how he humbly states he finished the race rather than he won the race. Some years later, earlier, he had told the Ephesian elders in Acts that his goal was to finish the race. And now he states triumphantly that I have finished. However, he says in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. In Robert Morgan's book, My All in All, he writes, if I can flip over to the page, I've run hard to the finish, believed all the way, all that's left now is the shouting. That's the message version of 2 Timothy 4.7. Have you ever heard of the jockey who started the race on one horse and ended on another and didn't know the difference? It happened on a rainy night in West Virginia in 1970. James Thornton was riding Native Bird, thundering around the track in the middle of the pack. He was side by side with a powerful thoroughbred named Candy Arm. He raised his whip to urge on Native Bird, but accidentally struck Candy Arm across the nose. It startled her so badly that she bumped into Native Bird, and the jockey riding Candy Arm flew off the horse. The collision tossed Thornton straight up into the air, and he came down between the two animals. He desperately grabbed a handful of mane and wound up under the horse's neck. Somehow he managed to pull himself into the back of the thoroughbred and back into the saddle to finish the race in sixth place. Only then did he realize he wasn't riding Native Bird <laughs> at all. He was on the back of Candy Arm. He had finished the race on the wrong horse. We don't want to do that. Someday soon, you're going to finish the race and come to the end of your earthly life. I wonder if only then will some realize they were riding the wrong horse. They were driven by the wrong passions. They were living for the wrong purposes. May we be able to say with Paul, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May I run the race before me, strong and brave, to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as onward I go. We all have a race to run, each one of us. In Hebrews, we are told to run with endurance the race marked out for us. Not somebody else, but for you. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Paul's great concern was to finish his course with joy. That's convicting, considering what he went through. He wanted to finish well. That should also be our desire. We run faithfully by remembering the walks of those who have gone before us, by throwing off all that hinders us from faithfulness, and by fixing our eyes on Jesus, our victorious King, who resolutely set out for Jerusalem to be crucified. Lastly, Paul states, I have kept the faith. Paul is most likely emphasizing his role as a steward of sound doctrine, which gives him great kudos as well. He was a guardian of the gospel, as which we are to be as well. Earlier, he had told Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching and guard what has been entrusted to you. Paul had faithfully held on to the truth and had passed it on to others. 
Every Christian in general, and leaders in particular, should take heed. We have a fight to endure, we have a race to run, and a priceless treasure to guard. God grant that every one of us who confesses the name of Jesus may be able to say that when we come to the end, I have kept the faith. The final picture in verse 6-8 is that of a crown or a garland. Again, an athletic analogy is used. Garlands won by the Greeks were greatly to be prized. Here Paul speaks of a crown is infinitely greater worth. The crown he would receive, the crown of righteousness. There's a difference between the gift of righteousness and the crown of righteousness. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ receives the gift of righteousness. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. All of us are made the righteousness of God in Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. That which we fancy to be our righteousness is but filthy rags in God's sight. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, our faith is imputed to, to us for his... When we believe in the Lord Jesus, our faith is imputed to us for righteousness. And we stand before God cleared of every charge. That is our justification. That is perfect. That is complete. Nothing need be added. But the crown of righteousness is something quite different. It is the reward that is given to those who have lived righteous lives so they have, as they have waited expectantly for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Henceforth there is laid for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. The Lord, the righteous judge, will sit on the judgment seat where the works of believers will be examined. Paul adds, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He was not thinking of himself only. He was not the only one who would receive a crown of righteousness. It was for all who love and long for Christ's appearing. Do we long for and love his appearing? Are we waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that the guiding principle of our souls? The hope of our Lord's coming is the most sanctifying thing going. If we are living day by day as one expecting the early return of our Lord, we will not be carried away by trends of our times or easily yield to the alluring world, the insatiable flesh, and the lures of Satan. May God grant that in that day, not one of us will come up empty-handed. This vision will keep us running the race. We are getting closer. No matter if Jesus returns or if we die, we're each, every day we're getting closer to this. Keep running, keep fighting, keep guarding. Soon we will see him as he is. We will see his nail-scarred hands. We will look into his majestic blue eyes. His lips will move and he will say, well done. He will place a crown on your head. On that day, we will not regret fighting, running, and enduring for his name's sake. Next, in verses 9 through 15, Paul lists nine people. Oftentimes, we quickly glance over the names mentioned at the end of most of Paul's letters, almost as if they were inconsequential. Yet, has God ordained for these names to be in the Holy Spirit and to be there for a purpose? In the first place, in order that they might be preserved for our instruction and help us in a future day. And then to enable us to understand the circumstances in which Paul found himself at this time, much better than we would otherwise. Let's see what we can learn from them in an effort to examine our own faithfulness in finishing well. From Paul's final words here, we first see the value and importance of relationships. We are not made to be an island. We need each other. The most important things on the apostle's mind as he faced his death were Jesus and people. Jesus indeed stated all the commandments were summed up in the two. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love people. Paul was not a lone ranger. He was always mentioning people in his letters. 
He longed for visits and words from others. He here mentions friends and foes, those who were faithful and those who were unfaithful, those who started well but departed, and those who without such a stellar start became exemplary. Surely some were of sweeter memories than others to him. As we run through this list, it would behoove us to ask ourselves if we are being faithful or faithless to God and to one another. I find it very interesting that in verse 9, Paul begins with the plea for Timothy to come quickly. You sense a longing for companionship from his words, and rightly so. The cold, dark prison cell was a lonely place. Paul would again entreat his son in the faith in verse 21, spurring him for action to come and visit soon. Paul had poured his heart and soul into Timothy, and realizing his time was short, he is very desirous to have one last visit. The apostle believed his clock was ticking and time was short. Also, the winter months would soon be approaching, which would inhibit travel. Yet the yearning for a visit also demonstrates the close bond between the two men. When one's life is ebbing to an end, we want to be around those we love. While Paul's spirit longed to see his Savior, his flesh longed to hug his friend. And these two desires are not incompatible. John Stott writes, One sometimes meets super spiritual people who claim that they never feel lonely and have no need for friends, for the companionship of Christ satisfies all their needs. But human friendship is the loving provision of God for mankind. Amen to that. Timothy was there in the beginning with Paul, and he was there in the end as well. Next, Paul mentions Demas, whom the apostle states loved the world and deserted him. May that not be said of us. While people can be wonderful sources of joy, they can also be sources of discouragement. Enter Demas. The word deserted, which Paul chose to describe Demas's departure, is a strong verb meaning to utterly abandon and leave someone helpless in a dire situation. His desertion brought pain to Paul. According to other passages, Demas was previously a co-worker and worked with Luke. Demas started positively and ended up negatively. He loved this present world over Christ's appearing. It is hard to tell exactly what this means since details were not given, but at the very least we know he had misplaced affections. When we have wrong loves, we live a wrong life. It is astonishing to think about a guy who hung out with Paul but later fell away. Demas reminds us of Judas, who was a fair-weather disciple. While Demas' desertion hurt Paul, three other departures seemed to have received the apostles' blessing. Crescens and Titus appear to have been sent out on a mission. Crescens to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. While nothing else is known about Crescens in the New Testament, Titus is no stranger to us. Apparently, he had finished his assignment in Crete and was now sent on a new assignment. Elsewhere, Paul calls him my true son and speaks of him as an exemplary friend and gospel partner. He brought comfort to Paul and others, and he appears to be a strong equipper of leaders. Paul trusted Titus to lead struggling churches. Tychius also appears to have been a positive associate, demonstrating a consistent life of faithfulness. He was a loyal bearer of the letter to the Colossians and Ephesians. That's a big assignment indeed, hand-delivering a book of the Bible, although it certainly was unbeknownst to him. It is possible that he took the present letter to Timothy also, because these three men were sent out, Crescens, Titus, and Tychius, and increased Paul's need for Timothy's companionship. He was alone. Paul states that only Luke, the beloved physician, remained with him. This is, an, this is not to be read as a disparaging comment against Luke, as Luke was a loyal friend and companion to Paul. Luke was a tough friend for tough times. He was with Paul in prison from the first time to the last. He was Paul's biographer and the way passages in Acts indicates that he was with him, the apostle, during some of the most difficult times. Certainly, Paul was glad to have Luke with him. Paul asked Timothy to bring with him Mark, as he was helpful to his ministry. 
Mark's story is an encouraging one for us all. He started out with many incredible privileges and opportunities. His mother's home was one of the main places for the Jerusalem church. Peter joined the disciples in his house after miraculously getting out of prison. Mark was an eyewitness of Jesus and may have been the young man who ran away naked at Jesus' arrest. He was familiar with the life and ministry of Jesus. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, Mark went with him. For some reason, however, Mark went home. Later, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him on another trip, but Paul refused and rejected the idea because he was viewed Mark as a deserter. This ended up with Barnabas and Mark going one way and Paul and Silas going another. As the years went on, we find this difference had passed away. Mark gets restored and is later present with Paul during the apostles' first imprisonment. Paul calls him a co-worker. Peter also mentions Mark as his son. Hereafter, some 20 years since that original separation, Mark makes a short list of reliable friends and companions. Ah, oh, mercy and grace, right? Mark's story should give fallen Christians hope. Despite rejection, possible shame, hurt, and failure, Mark is restored and put back in the game. Praise God. Mark was not only useful to Paul, he was used by God to write the Gospel of Mark. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark gives us the action-packed gospel focusing on the suffering Messiah. This Messiah restored him and can restore all of us by his grace. Paul next asked Timothy to bring his cloak and scrolls when he comes, especially the parchments. To me, this just gives Paul an image of humanness. He so often appears superhuman and holy writ that when a verse shows that he had a desire or need, I can so relate. The worn, torn apostle was cold and he needed his cloak and he wanted his books. It is unsure that the scrolls and parchments contain um, what they contain, but if they had been parts of the scripture, we can readily understand why he sh would have been so anxious to receive them. I'll lean towards that. Stott writes, when our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothing. When our mind is bored, we need books. To admit this is not unspiritual, it is human. Paul had evidently been visiting Carpus at Traos, or Troas, and for some unknown reason had entrusted his possession to Carpus, perhaps because of his future whereabouts being so uncertain, possibly prison, and indeed it was. And these items would have been very valuable to Paul, and he wanted them in safe hands. Paul mentions Alexander the metal worker, next whom he states had done him much harm. He may have been an idol maker who resented Paul for cutting into his bottom line. Paul, like King David, remarked that the Lord would repay him. King David states in Psalm 28, 3 through 4, Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who do evil who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. Remember, ladies, it's always God's to avenge. He will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning calls on his head. We are not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. He will repay, God repays in his perfect timing for his glory alone. Paul is warning his protege to be on his guard regarding Alexander because he strongly opposed their message and his opposition was evil. Paul next mentions his lack of human support in his first defense. Some could not be there because of other tasks and others would not be there because of fear or other reasons. This courageous missionary of the church did not have one single Christian alongside him during his darkest days, which is so sad. Paul reminds us of Jesus. Previously, Paul, like Jesus, went to Jerusalem knowing he was walking into his death. Now Paul in his own garden of Gethsemane in that little hole in the ground in Rome, and he states everyone had deserted him. Yet Paul knew he was not alone because the Lord stood by his side and gave him strength so that the message might be proclaimed and the Gentiles 
might hear. We are never alone, Greg Laurie writes, for he himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It would have been easy for the Hebrew teenagers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to think that God may have forgotten about them. The king had given a decree that everyone should fall down and worship the golden image he had erected of himself. When certain music was played, everyone in the kingdom was ordered to lie prostrate in worship. But there, standing up defiantly like three sore thumbs, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was teenage rebellion channeled in the right direction. The king, however, didn't like their rebelling. He was so enraged that he ordered his guards to heat the furnace seven times hotter. The heat was so intense that when the guards took the three Hebrew teenagers to the brink of the furnace, they were overcome by the flames and died. But the king took a hard look, and inside he saw four. Of course he did, not three individuals walking around in the fire. Where was God in all of this? He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right in that furnace. We always say, Lord, get me out of this. Keep me from the problems, Lord. But the Lord is saying, there are times when I will answer that prayer, and there are times when I will walk with you through the hard days. But know this, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Being a Christian doesn't mean you never will have another problem. Being a Christian doesn't mean that life will be easy. But it does mean a lot of things. It means you never will, will be alone again. No matter what you face in life, you will have Jesus Christ there with you, interceding for you, helping you, and walking with you through it. Sometimes God delivers us from the trials, and sometimes he delivers us in it. And Robert Morgan writes, The Lord will rescue me from all evil and take me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. 2 Timothy 4.18 More people are crowded onto this planet now than ever before in history. Yet loneliness is pandemic. Morris West, in his book, The Devil's Advocate, wrote, It comes to all of us sooner or later. Friends die. Family dies. Lovers and husbands, too. We get old. We get sick. In a society where people live in impersonal cities or suburbs, where electronic entertainment often replaces one-on-one -on -one conversation, where people move from job to job and state to state, and marriage to marriage, loneliness has become epidemic. Four categories of people are especially lonely. Singles, people in ministry, those whose friends forsake them, and prisoners on death row. The Apostle Paul fit into all those categories at once. In his last recorded chapter, 2 Timothy 4, he clearly is bothered by the cold weather his lack of reading material, the fickleness of his friends, and his legal problems. But Paul stayed busy. He wrote letters, praise God, and remembered that God was going to deliver him from all evil. He made use of every opportunity. Through all the changing scenes of life, we have an unsaleable basis for optimism. It's Christ himself who will rescue us from all evil. Reject self-pity, reject it. Learn to dispel loneliness, stay busy, pour out your life, be positive, and keep looking upward. Through all the changing scenes of life and trouble and joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. Of his deliverance I will boast till all that are distressed from my example courage take and soothe their griefs to rest. The apostle knew that he was safely in God's hands, right smack in the center of his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And that was the most profitable, profitable place for him to be. God is never taken by surprise, and the apostle's life was all part of his redeeming plan. Certainly, he is one that could be listed in the Hebrews Hall of Fame, chapter 11, which states the world was not worthy of him. Therefore, in Christ's power, this once torn apostle heralded the gospel to the Gentiles who were present. His dominant concern was not himself, but the message of Jesus. 
What an amazing illustration of 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul knew that he knew that he knew that God provides us with the strength. He gives us a message. He protects us from evil and will ultimately bring us to heaven. God deserves all the glory. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lastly, ever thinking of others in verses 19 through 21, Paul sends out this final greeting to the other saints. He mentions old friends and new friends, co-workers who exemplified steady faithfulness to our Lord Jesus. These individuals were loyal servants and were dear to his heart. While some may be unknown to us, they were certainly not unknown to God. Our service to the Lord Jesus never goes unnoticed by the Master, and you will never outgive him. The church has been blessed, enriched, and strengthened throughout the ages by such unsung heroes. It is a reminder to us as well to remain faithful to the task following hard after Christ, even when we're in anonymity. Let, us, let this be a warning to me, O Lord. Set thou a guard before my eyes, my ears, and other faculties, lest the world again should enter through these avenues of the heart. If the spark be not ex speedily extinguished, it will soon break out into a flame. Thus sin is the progressive nature, and its venom spreads very quickly and very wide unless it is stopped and opposed in time. Watch, therefore, over this unsteady heart of mine, O keeper of Israel, that as soon as it begins to wander from thee, I may be alarmed to flee from sin as from a serpent. Give me grace to look upon every hour as my last, so that by being ever wisely upon my guard, I may meet thee with joy when my time is run out, whenever it shall please thee to call me thence. That's Bogotowski. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Father, thank you for Paul's stellar example of following heart after you. Lord, encourage and strengthen us to do likewise for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.